It's Wednesday, which means it's time for another episode of Legally Unfiltered. It's a podcast that discusses issues in the media and issues that affect your life. Every once in a while, we have special guests on to talk about different legal areas of law and different kind of things that deal with criminal justice. It's no different this week. We have a special guest, Charles Watson. Let's go on and kick things off. This is Attorney Franz Borkart. I'm here with Attorney Richard Sprinkle. Charles has a very colorful background. Charles is a former law enforcement, uh, Louisiana State Police Uh, crime lab analyst. Um, He has been qualified in the areas of fingerprint analysis, firearm examination, crime scene investigations, blood stain pattern analysis, and forensic science. Um, Just a great guy to be around. He uh, now is in the private sector helping out, uh, you know, both sides, so to speak, with his expertise. So Charles, tell us a little bit uh, more about yourself. Well, I retired last year from after 21 years of the Louisiana State Police Crime Laboratory uh, after working in those previously mentioned fields. Uh, now I am working as, like I said, like you said, in the, uh, the private sector. I do some I do private casework, uh, both on both civil and criminal. And so working in that has been very rewarding, very, uh, very, very interesting. So to speak, I also work as the marketing director for a company called Atlas Defense. We're the largest suppressor manufacturer in the Gulf South. And so if you guys uh, know what a suppressor is, that's a suppressor or a silencer or a gun muffler or a can or whatever you want to call it. It's, uh, those are one of my favorite parts of the firearms industry. So that, that is uh, what I'm you know, heavily involved in. I've been involved in the media uh, for quite a number of years and going back to a little television show that we were on Discovery Channel there for a while. And so I've been around, uh, been around media and production, and I'm still very involved in the firearms industry itself. Uh, if anybody listening to this sees me at SHOT Show this year in January, come up and say hi. Well, your expertise in forensics and firearms is why you're here today. We're doing an episode, folks. It's called Forensics and Firearms, Facts and Fiction. Um, I first encountered Charles when I was working at the East Baton Rouge Parish Public Defender's Office. In fact, I cross-examined him, I think, a couple of times. Then there was a uh, there was an instance where I was a prosecutor in the DA's office, and I used Charles as a gratuitous witness to talk about some firearm issues. So we, we thought it'd be a good idea to have you on, Charles, because some one of the things we've been getting feedback on on our episodes is, you know, you guys do criminal justice work. You know, can you bring somebody on to talk a little bit about some of the myths and the mysteries of forensic science? And then also... Also, one of the things we really want to talk about, and, and I'm going to let Richard do the heavy lifting on that, is firearms and some of the same issues with firearms, the myths, some of the laws are surrounding what kind of firearms you can have and not have. You know, everybody has an opinion about pew pews. So uh, we're definitely going to talk about that. So let's kick things off to talking about forensics. OK, so here's the deal. I have noticed, Charles, and, and I want to start with what, what we call in the business, and you're aware of it, the CSI effect. Um, we have encountered citizens that come into the criminal justice system, and, and they have certain expectations with what uh, criminal criminal defense attorneys, criminal prosecutors, and, and more to the point, they have expectations of what crime scene analysts can and can't do. You know, the, the classic example is the CSI episode where they, they reconstruct a record uh, or a clay pot on a record player to, 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 to capture sounds that may or may not have been recorded. I mean, just total ridiculousness. So let's start with the, with the CSI effect. In your, in your line of work, what have you noticed, uh, you know, in terms of views on on what can and can't be done and some of the myths about crime scene analysis? Like even to start off with those television shows, I'm convinced that some of those writers were having a, a contest to see who could come up with the most ridiculous thing they could put on television mm-hmm. and then sell it. 
And so, and then in any time you would even a lot of you get a, a scientific paper that even would nudge or hint on something, it would end up in the next episode within three weeks. It was uh, like the writers were turning that stuff around really, really fast. I've actually taught a lot of lectures on the CSI effect. I used to uh, actually teach at the one of our local colleges here, and I would teach um, uh, ethics and, and professional practice. And one of my lectures would be on the CSI effect. And the CSI effect affects literally every single person involved in the process. It affects the prosecutor, it affects the, the defense attorney, it affects the client, it affects the judge, it affects the police officers, it affects the forensic scientists, it affects the crime scene people themselves. If literally everyone is influenced by it, police officers come to, to uh, forensic scientists or come to, to uh, crime scene investigators and say, I need you to do this. I, I need you to do that. I saw it on television. Well, we can't do that. That's not how that works. Well, and, and, and look, to, to a certain degree, I can't blame the uninitiated citizen who has no background in forensic science and DNA and fingerprints. You know, I don't blame them for 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 their only source of information on this is 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 CSI or, or some crime show where they they they've developed expectations. And really what it is, is it's it's expectations and 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 more appropriately false expectations of what you guys can do in a field and what you can't do in a field. Do it in the field or in the laboratory. Right, right, right. Well, right. You know, the laboratory in and of itself is actually restricted by a very, very tightly bound set of rules. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't get to make up analysis on the fly. Like, oh, I want to, like you said, the clay pot. Okay, I want to experiment with this clay pot. We're not in the process of doing experimentation in a crime lab. We're in the process of using tried and true uh, certified or accredited methodologies in order to achieve a desired result or get a desired answer. And that answer may be yes. And the answer may be no. The answer may be, I don't know. So one of the things that, and you, you've seen me do it in trial on both sides, I guess. One of the things I always hammer when I'm defending someone is I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty much in a position of, of defenselessness. If you, if you collect the evidence and what you guys call processing evidence, where you collect evidence, you dust for prints, you, you swab for DNA and, and whatnot, you take photographs. If you do everything you're supposed to do and, and the analysis just comes back not necessarily conclusive or more to the point, if it comes back that it is my guy, it is what it is. I always leverage the position of when when someone doesn't try to, to collect evidence. And that's, and generally in my experience, the crime scene defense is, is there's opportunities that are missed. And, and, and whether it's because of incompetence or whether it's because of just, hey, I, I didn't do that because I didn't think anything would come of it. That's generally where I hammer home as a defense attorney. But I want to talk to you about that now because because now you don't work for the crime lab anymore. And now guys like us can can hire you to look at an analysis or look at a set of facts and kind of give us a, an educated and, and informed and, and more to the point, an expert opinion on it. So what are the things that you're seeing now on your side that that if, if, if CSI effect is on one end of the spectrum, on the other end of the spectrum is not doing things the way you're supposed to. I, and I'll speak in generalities because there is a case that I, I, I sure. was working with. Sure, sure, sure. So speaking, speaking about this case in generalities, like there was, there was some incomplete nature to some trajectory reconstruction at a crime scene. And it's like, can you tell, with the information I was given, can you tell the direction of the shot? And my response was, no, where's the picture of the bullet hole? We don't have that. Why don't you have that? Well, they didn't take that picture. Well, then you have somebody that didn't work a crime scene right. 
Because if you're concerned about where the direction of the shot came from and you don't have a picture of the bullet hole or a bullet hole with a trajectory rod stuck in it or literally anything other than something I can't use, then we can't, I, I can't give you an answer. What I can give you, what I can say is this is not done properly. Right. You know, and then, and that's, that's, that's one example. I'm like I said, I, I am new to the, to this side of it. However, that's one, that's one example that's come across in a relatively few number of cases that I've worked. So percentage wise, this looks like it might be kind of high, you know, so that, that is one example. Now, other examples are things like, you know, what was fingerprinted at the crime scene. I have a, uh, that goes back to a story of one of the guys I worked with. Well, the defense attorney pulled up a picture of the crime scene. Did your fingerprint here? Did your fingerprint here? Did your fingerprint here? Did your fingerprint here? And he, a lot of times he had to say, I don't know, because he didn't keep notes of where he fingerprinted and he didn't fingerprint. He knew he didn't fingerprint everything. Right. So, you know, which would have been the other answer. I fingerprinted the entire house. Yes. I fingerprinted every single surface in that house that I thought might have been touched, you know, that, which, you know, that's, so I, that would have been a good answer if he had been able to give it. So, so I've taught at the crime lab before from the angle of criminal defense work. And I've told them in not so many words, shitty report writing makes for shitty testimony. So, so the idea is, is that you're going to, if, if you're not taking good notes and you're not writing a good report a year and a half later, you're, I mean, you're going to be, your memory is not as good as your note taking, you know? Correct. But however, in some cases, the reports that they, that, that some have to write have a lot of restrictions on what can be put in that report. Oh. Oh. So sometimes the, what you may be seeing in a report that you find misleading or con- confusing, that person may have wanted to write it better. So one of the things that, that drives me up the wall before we talk about laboratory work is, um, When I was teaching the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab on one occasion, I asked them about defense attorneys approaching analysts and talking about their reports, not from a I gotcha standpoint, but more from a, you know, if I have a pathologist that did an autopsy, you better believe I'm going to reach out to that that, that doctor and say, look, I want to go over your report with you. I want to understand it. The policy at the State Police Crime Lab, at least when I taught them, was we're not going to talk to you. You're a defense attorney. We're not going to talk to you. And in fact, we're going to notify the prosecutors that you came and reached out to us. And I, I looked at him and I'm like, you guys are a bunch of scientists. You know what that looks like that you won't talk to me? I, I said, I, I get it. You may want to, I get it. You may want a controlled environment where you'll talk to me, but we're going to record it or you're going to talk to me and there needs to be some parameters behind it. But to, to have a blanket, I'm a scientist, but I can't talk to you because you're on the other side. That made me really nervous. And they were like, well, what, what, what do you think about that? And I said, well, I'm going to have a lot of fun cross-examining you because if all you care about as a scientist is truth the truth isn't going to change sitting down and talking to me now some would argue that there's some of our elk of defense attorneys that are a little sleazy and might do things to try to ensnare and trap it happens who are you possibly talking about i know i know i I wouldn't i I don't think i've ever encountered a no i can't even get to that sentence with a straight face uh yes well what you are suffering from and what a lot of us suffer from what anybody suffers in any profession from is what has come before right and those who have come before you there's a reason for every policy Mm-hmm. And that policy sometimes has a name attached to it. Now, I don't know what that name is because that policy was in place before I came along. Sometimes it's named after an attorney. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. it, and it very well could be. Yeah. There, might be there, there is a high probability there's an attorney's name that would be attached to that policy probably 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. 
Now, granted, 30 years ago, that was a different world. Right. You know, however, that policy has, it has from what I understand, still being maintained. Now, uh, we also have the, the, the other issue is, who are you getting on the phone? Who are you talking to? And are, how much practice have they had in interacting in a semi-informal manner with someone who is a defense attorney or a prosecutor or anyone else for that matter? Communication is a key factor that is oftentimes not instructed or instructable. Right. And so what you have when you end up the person who goes to court, you know, and you're going to have that person's going to study their report. They're going to go over the notes. They're going to discuss it with someone else. And there's going to be some training that takes right. place. And so what you're the, the, the downside to that is, uh, you know, these people may not be trained. And so what you're going to get from an answer when you talk to somebody like that, it may, may or may not even be what you want, or it may not even be what you get on the other side of it, which is kind of what, what does your buddy do? He, you know, he goes for a bond reduction hearing and he drags everybody down to the courtroom and get everybody's testimony We're on the record. We're not going to use his name on the podcast, but I know who you're, I have a, a, a colleague of mine that Charles is referring to that for a bond reduction hearing, he'll subpoena everybody and get everybody to come down there and start just collecting it. It's a fishing expedition, but it's a, to some degree, it's a lawful fishing expedition and zealous advocacy. That's well, what that so is. That means it's, <laughs> a, it's a bond reduction hearing that if he got his bond reduced, then and was able to get out, he was going to stay in jail because he's already in jail for something else. Pro- so, no, no, I see it. So, so here's 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 what I want to talk about before we, we turn things over to, to to Richard for firearms. Is I want to talk about laboratory work because what we're seeing on a national scale, on a national, I guess, theater, is laboratories getting busted doing things that are not only causing issues in current cases, but past cases. Um, I'm sure you've seen some of this. Talk a little bit about some of the shortcomings, and you don't have to talk about the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab, but talk a little bit about issues you're seeing coming up in laboratories that are causing chaos. A lot of the issues that stem from what you're seeing in these laboratories that are getting in trouble is the upper management experience having the phenomenon that I call belligerent ignorance. Okay. What you're seeing is we need to fix this. Well, you, we're not going to give you money to fix that. Go. We, we've been doing it this way this long. Keep doing it the way you've been doing it. And these laboratories are generally not accredited. Okay. You know, as much as accreditation is a giant millstone that hangs around the neck of every analyst that is in an accredited laboratory, restrict. Sometimes there, you want to go that extra step. Sometimes there's some extra test you might want to perform, or something you want to do, or an ex, something, a procedure you want to that you read about, but you can't unless you go through validation studies. You can't do it. Right. And you would like to, and but as much as it ties your hands, it also frees you up to not have to worry about getting slapped down later on because you did something that you weren't supposed to do or that you you short you you, you short came an, an analysis or you did something wrong or there's because there's checks and balances put into every accredited laboratory so that's what that's for right. you know and that and I and I kicked against the goads a great deal on this when during my career I did because that's my personality uh, however the the accreditation when addressed appropriately, then there's some, there's some middle ground that can be found in our laboratory. And to brag on the state police lab, but just a little bit, in 2000, when we were accredited for the first time, we were with the second laboratory in the history of the organization to get through without a revision on our first attempt 
They, a matter of fact, they called, uh, like they, they brought our application for accreditation before the board, especially to say, look at these guys. We don't have to change a thing. Can we go ahead and get on, get their accreditation done? And we, they, and they put it through our, our laboratory has been an example. We have a lot of folks, guys from Detroit, Michigan, which obviously has got a lot of issues there. I look up one day and they, I'm being introduced to their, their captain over their homicide division and the guy in charge of their crime lab. Hey, these guys are from Detroit. They want to see how we're doing things. Sure. You know, so just to brag on our laboratory. And so, so what I is in my opinion, exemplary. Right. However, so which means I didn't personally encounter a lot of these issues that you're talking about. Like whenever we had a problem, Things ground to a halt. The brakes are put on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shut things down. Man, else would be pulled off the bench, you know, or uh, corrections be made in procedures or whatever we had to do to, to fix it. We fixed it. So, but what you're seeing a lot the 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 value of accreditation is what you're seeing from these laboratories is is past work. There's issues involved that you're uh, what what you're not what you're not seeing is. Uh, uh, those accredited laboratories get in trouble. It's those, a lot of times it's police departments. Houston PD is a, I don't want to say a shining example. It's the opposite of whatever a shining example is. It's, a, it's infamous. The belligerent ignorance in that department drove that laboratory into the ground. They had the vaults full of DNA kits. They're in a leaky vault where they're full of water and so they're mold. Cross-contamination, contamination, and... Absolutely, across the board. And so what you're, and so if... You so can't my, say that this is a pristine piece of evidence that I was working so, on. You're in trouble. So my, my trajectory is always reasonable doubt. I need to be able to look at a set of facts and say there is reasonable doubt as to identity. There's reasonable doubt as to he or she didn't touch this item. And if I can invalidate or at least call into question a scientific analysis, that may make hitting reasonable doubt a little bit easier. Now, that being said... Typically, what I see on my side of the table is, is let's say I have a DNA case and I and I look, I'm I'm by no means a DNA expert. I know enough about DNA to know that I need to get someone who knows DNA. So typically what I do is I'll get the evidence. I'll get the raw data, folks. That's basically the 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 actual behind the scenes analysis that's going on. And without going into specifics, I'll get all that stuff and I'll hand it to somebody who knows what they're doing. And if they say, well, I hope you're not planning on calling me to the stand because theoretically it's your guy, you know, well, then I know that I have an issue at that point and I'm not, I'm not shooting for reasonable doubt. I may be talking plea bargaining. I may be talking about resolutions. What's interesting to me though is, and, 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 and again, forensics is a wide shotgun. Um, What's interesting to me, though, is I recently had a case in a, in a surrounding parish where the forensic analysis had to do with cell phones and, and Internet records. And when I tell you the ball was dropped on the front end, it was tremendously dropped on the front end. I had to have an independent analysis done on hardware and I had to have an independent analysis done on cell phones such that I turned that over. And then the DA's office looked at everybody and said, okay, well, why wasn't this done or why wasn't this done? And our efforts were used essentially to, to hopefully lead this guy to, to not being prosecuted. Um, but before we go too deep into that, I do want to talk about a couple more things before we, we go into pew-pews, so to speak. Um, DNA. DNA is a hot thing right now. I know we're doing some new types of DNA testing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, <clears throat> DNA is one of the few things that is actually new under the sun. You know, to talk about, however, you know, everybody's all into this 23andMe stuff now. And then the, you're, you're, the 
the history and the, you know, how or what percentage of whatever race are you and all this right, sort of thing, right. which my, my own personal one was a little bit surprising. You can't watch, by the way, you can't watch like NFL football right now without seeing Ancestry.com commercials out the wazoo. It's crazy because it's all the dollars. Is that where is that where the, the real money is going? It, it's, it's the cash money. Okay. I mean, what's follow the money, follow the money, follow right. the money. You it, know, am I the only one that's paranoid about having my DNA on a registry you somewhere? Should, and and you mean, should, but mine's, mine was in the crime lab because in the case of possible contamination. So they need to be able to test you. Right. 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 You know, so and, and look, if you're in South Louisiana and you're working a crime scene and it's the middle of the summer and you're sweating, there's a high percentage chance you're going to contaminate some evidence. Let me, let me ask you this question, because this is the question that comes up most commonly with, with civilians. Most people believe now that to not have DNA in a case, and this may go back to the CSI effect. It's 100,000% the CSI effect. Right, continue. right, right. But, but to not have DNA in a case, and I'll, I'll, I'll buffer that statement with to at least not, try, to, not trying to have at least an analysis is almost inexcusable these days. What are your thoughts on that? A um, little bit of a case history. I actually had a case once where... It, I found the, it was a rape case, and I found the suspect's wallet in the victim's bed. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, made for a really quick crime scene to be worked. I was like, okay, well, and then the, the detectives on scene. We call like, that circumstantial evidence, by the way, folks. <laughs> I mean, who's to say the victim didn't steal the guy's wallet? I mean, come on. Right. Yeah. No, that's not how this went down. Yeah. And so uh, they immediately went and snarfed the guy up, and, and he confessed to that rape, another rape, and an attempted murder, and basically cleared up all the cool crime in this small town for like the last six, previous six months. So then they got to the trial and got to the point of, well, you didn't, get, you didn't do DNA in this case. No, we didn't. Why didn't you? Because here's his wallet, and that's his driver's license, and he's sitting right over there. Well, right. In that kind of a case, it's clear cut, right? Well, there's so there's a spectrum. Right. So we have established one end of the spectrum, which is the wallet in the victim's bed. So then there you have the other side of the spectrum, which you don't have literally nothing. And we're talking about identity, by the way, guys. Yeah. We're, we're, we're talking about... Because at the end of the day, DNA is a mechanism to determine identity. There's only two real ways to determine identity for someone at a crime scene. Right. There's DNA and there's fingerprints. Well, I guess eyewitness or videotape or something like that. At a forensic level, there's only two things that you have at the crime lab. You've got fingerprints, which are still incredibly valid and still work really well. And there's still new ways of getting fingerprints being processed all the time. So it's not something you can discard. And then there's DNA, you know, which is expensive it's it's very pricey to perform in one test right and you can't just do one test you have to do two tests because you have to have something to compare yeah, it to but the problem you have is you're going to get on the stand and say how pricey it is oh i'm not talking about human liberty and man that no, sounds I'm, horrible no i'm not no, i'm not going to get on the stand and say that but i'm but i know but, I, I get you I but get you. What, you and i are here where the rubber meets the road you know right. this is so if you have an if you have the fingerprints then you you know so maybe maybe you draw the line there which is why some laboratories have a policy where we will test the first five items that you, what are your first five most probative items in your case? And we test those. And if we don't get the DNA, give us your next five and then your next five. That way they're not being overloaded with a giant pile of evidence. Oh, when I was, when I was a felony prosecutor at the DA's office, if I had a case with DNA, I generally, depending on which agency it was and not state police crime lab, but depending on which agency it was, I was the one making the decision whether or not to have something tested for DNA, well, which, which is kind of weird. I mean, <laughs> but, but that's kind of with, with constraints of space. Right. And financial. And yeah. financial and what have you. It's like, well, we can't just shotgun everything at this. We have to, we have to be judicious about what we pick. 
And, and to be honest, sometimes it's better that you don't test something for DNA in terms of my client's worldview. Just saying. Just throw that it, out there. That might work. Might, but then what they're expanding. We actually had this during the Derek Tully serial killer investigation. We actually had some information from his genetic profile that led us to believe he was an African-American male. Mm-hmm. There were elements within the task force that actually thought that that was racist and we shouldn't put that information out there. And we're like, it's not racist, it's genetics. So <laughs> it's different. It's called science. <laughs> so that so was, the, break, the breakdown really though, let's, let's, let's square in on this. The breakdown is generally not the science. It's the people that sometimes don't do the science right. Or is that a fair set? I mean, that's, and it's some, it's garbage in, garbage out. Sometimes right. you, at the, you know, if you don't have experienced, knowledgeable, conscientious, intelligent crime scene investigators that show up and are the first guy there and says, look, I'm going to do this scene right. And they have the foresight to see all the way to court. This is what I used to, I used to, when I would teach classes in crime scene investigation, I'll actually take a piece of chalk and I'll start on the other side of the chalkboard, like off the, on the wall. Like around the corner, if I have to, if I'm trying to make a dramatic impact because I'm a giant canned ham and just draw a line from crime scene all the way around the room on the wall with chalks. Nobody's going to hurt and say court. And you have to see from one to the other. And if you don't have somebody that can do that for whatever reason, due to lack of training or, or, or wherewithal or competence or caring or budget whatever pick a reason then you're going to get like i said garbage in garbage out so you you have to have a good have a good crime scene on the front side with good quality control with uh prevention of deleterious change to the evidence and lack of contamination to start with because the dna is so sensitive these days that five skin cells and you can get a profile that pen you've been using i could swab it and get your profile right meow um and, and look and look dna for better or for worse, makes my life a lot easier uh, as a defense attorney. Now, before we turn it over to Richard, I, I want to talk about one last thing, and that's it's, it's you know speaking of forecasting, you know from from crime scene to, to courthouse, I want you to forecast a little bit from where we are today in, in the forensic science world to where you see us going, because you know off off air before we started recording today, we talked a little bit about virtual reality. We talked about AI and, and how technology is making some tasks extremely more simple. Where do you see us going, you know, scientifically? I think you're going to see more of that 360 crime scene type thing. You're going to see that. That was a, that was a TV show that they put out. It was Crime Scene 360 or whatever. It's just, a, it's a 3D scanner combined with Photography, and you can actually like put on VR glasses and sort of walk back through a crime scene. That, that technology is here; it's on the ground now. Uh, State you, Poli- you and I, in fact, had a case where it was it was in Livingston Parish where they I don't know if it was the 360 technology, but they used dowel rods to essentially give a th- a panoramic view of where bullet holes or shots went through a trailer. Yeah, um, and it was a very interesting video that was it was, and I don't know. I don't know how the how it worked from a technological standpoint, but it was very cool to actually watch it. So, and you're going to see higher resolution with those things. Sure. You're going to see. Um, however, it, it is going to have its limits. You know, everything is every, nothing will ever be as good as quote reality. You're not going to have so. And in trajectory, there's always a margin of error whenever you're doing trajectory work because bullets do sometimes do some weird things when they go through walls. So you're going to see that, but you will also be able to see. Um, what as far as that goes, what we can easily construct or more easily construct realms of possibility, especially when it comes to like a gunshot. Mm-hmm. So there's what I uh, actually did this lecture that Richard was at the other day. It was it talks about zones of probability. There's the zone of like where you know this guy could have been standing due to the angle of the impact, 
then there's a zone where it would be an awkward shot, but he could have made it. And then there's a zone of impossibility. Right. And so you'll be able to actually, I think, paint those in sort of a 3D realm, okay. so to speak. Um, DNA is going to continue to get more and more sensitive. And I think we're going to start seeing more and more of the ancestry type stuff be introduced into the forensic side. Uh, which, like I said, we did do that during the Derek Tully investigation. You're going to see more and more of that. I think you're going to say, especially when you have an unsub, you know, you've got, well, we don't know who this guy is, he's a rapist, we've got his genetic profile. Well, he was black, he was, or he was he was white, he had green eyes, he had blue eyes, you know, or, it's like we, or at least give his ancestry, you know, this person's well, sub-Saharan African, or this guy's Norwegian, or, you and know. And that is the cool thing, when you see, like, a serial killer from California caught decades later, because in part we're having this expansive database of, of information. That is cool to me. That's very cool to me that we have these unsolved crimes. And because of the sensitivity of DNA or because of familial DNA, um, I don't know what the scientific term for that is. That's actually pretty close to, to good. Yeah. I'll, you're solid. Look yeah. at me. Look at me. So I, I like that. I like the expansion of that. Yeah. Well, they got they used the DNA from 23andMe to get to the guy's brother, and then they were able to right. try down this. I was like, oh, here we go. Now we're now we're going to get into what he have who had the rights to the information. You know, of course, you when you do 23andMe, you sign over. If you look, oh yeah, if you read the terms and conditions oh, on that yeah. one, you're signing it all over. And you know, the then it goes back to does anybody ever really read the terms and conditions? And nobody. Nobody reads terms and conditions. So I think I think I've started reading them because they're putting money in them now. Sometimes. So I I think that one of the cool things we're going to be seeing is how and and I I don't call this forensic evidence, but you know th how things like Siri or Facebook Messenger or what's the Amazon one? The oh, Alexa? Alexa. Alexa. How those devices that are listening are going to help aid you as a crime scene and analyst because it's going to give you another layer of evidence that you can then draw inferences from or extrapolate information from that all of a sudden you're going to be like, okay, we need to be looking over here or we need to be looking at this person. I think that's going to be an interesting realm of, 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 of crime scene investigation, so to speak. That may not be tech, tech helps all cases. I've had a civil case where we subpoenaed the uh, the records keeping for some guy's uh, CPAP machine because those things transmit via cell phone every night. Are you to, kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. They transmit whether or not you're using it, how long you've been using, how much air leak uh, it happens. And in a car wreck case, where a guy fell asleep at the wheel and plowed into the back of somebody at five o'clock in the morning when he was coming home from working the night shift, I found out he was uh, he he was had been using a CPAP machine for years, but he'd also told the doctor he didn't like wearing it. So uh, you can see you can so we, find data on anything. Now. We had a case once where they were trying to subpoena the OnStar records from somebody's suburban. They were trying to because it was a it was a kidnap case or something, and they were trying to see where this person had been and saying trying to get at least what they could out of the OnStar setup. You know, because it's always on. It's always tracking you. So so you've been listening to this episode of Legally Unfiltered about the facts and fiction of forensics. We've had special guest Charles Watson with us. This is attorney Franz Borkart saying goodbye. Attorney uh, Richard Sprinkle is the one holding the camera right now. So we'll catch you guys next time. Stay tuned for our next episode, which is the facts and fictions of firearms. The views and opinions expressed in Legally Unfiltered do not constitute legal advice. If you would like legal advice on the topics that we've discussed, send us money. That's right. Go ahead and retain us. Do not, kids, try this at home.